Hey church, Pastor Cody here, and I just want to say thank you for stopping by and joining us in worship today. And while we're super excited that you're hanging out with us for this message, we also want to remind you that this is really just um, a supplemental resource that cannot and will not replace the local church. So while um, we're, we're glad that you're here, while we're glad that you're encouraged and, and, and uh, challenged and shaped by the Word of God that's being preached today, we also want to um, let you know that this is really just a substitute and in no way should forsake the gathering together of the local church body. We believe that the local church is God's plan A in speaking the gospel. So please come hang out with us here at rest um, this Sunday morning with us or um, go find another Bible-believing church. Jesus is preparing the church um, that's close to you. I mean, he's challenged you to get plugged in there. Um, Jesus loves the church. And we love Jesus and we believe that we can love Jesus better by being locally connected and serving her well. So um, just jump right in with us and we're glad you're here. Hey, I may be on one of the pastors here and I'm so glad that you're hanging out with us today uh, as we celebrate uh, Palm Sunday. We'll try to, yeah, you can bring it up here. We'll give it a shot. I need my hand, so I can got, I got lots of gestures to do this morning. Um, we're preparing to go into Holy Week uh, this week, and I'm excited this morning to talk to you about this paradox of the palm. The paradox of the palm, empty and expect. This is a perfect intro for me because actually, you know, there are some times in our lives um, when unexpected things show up. That's what I was going to talk about. So the Lord is just preparing us. Can you, do you get that off of me? Is it still back there? It's like a tail. Let's give it up for Pastor Cody this morning. Yeah. Um, so you've probably found yourself in some spots like that where things just don't make a lot of sense sometimes. And, and you kind of um, get into some stuff and, and, and we, you know, we, we oftentimes think that there are supposed to be particular outcomes based off of my particular experiences of the, of the past um, but then the unexpected shows up and it knocks at your, at your door um, or it shows up with a mic that doesn't work or, or maybe you just step in it, you know, the, uh, the unexpected happens and, and all of a sudden this original outline that you brought to the table of this carefully laid out plan, it's kind of just like a, a screen door on a submarine and it doesn't do much, amen? But you know, it's in those moments I think whenever the, the, the predictable becomes unpredictable in our lives, where I think we, we start to realize that these carefully laid out plans that we've set up and orchestrated in, in our own wisdom, even though they can be thought through really well, they can be upended, and sometimes it's upended in the best of ways. In fact, I would argue that many times in our lives, it's the things that tend to upend our plans that actually work out for the best, and they're so paradoxical in nature, and it's almost as if God delights in some way in taking uh, human logic and, and throwing like a Fresh Prince of Bel-Air on it, and he, he flip turns it upside down, right? And, and like you look at the scriptures and you see this on repeat as you read the Bible over and over again of these things that, that just don't make a lot of sense. And, and like you, every instinct inside of you is telling you to go right. And then the Lord's on, but you need to go left. Or like you, you read in the Bible where it says, well, hey, actually the last will be first. 
or you see where it's our, our weakness that, that brings out Christ's power, or, or, or we see that to save our lives, sometimes we actually have to lose our life. And, and one of the most beautiful paradoxes in the scriptures comes from this paradox of the palm for what we're talking about this morning. And this palm, this paradox of the palm, it leads into this, this Good Friday where paradoxically the death of this one man leads to life for many. And so today we're going to really explore the power of the paradox. And so we're all going to lean in a little bit. Tell your neighbor, say, lean in, lean in, just lean in. We're going to lean into this mystery around these cups, the mystery of the cups. And my hope is that, that this morning that you would be encouraged and that you would, you would um, trust God in his sovereignty, that you would trust God in his severity, that you would trust God in, in his grace, even when sometimes his plans leave you scratching your head a little bit. And so if you have your Bible this morning, um, we're going to work our way through several different scriptures, but as a baseline, we're going to start, start in the Old Testament in the book of Psalms, um, chapter 116. So if you have your Bible, go ahead and pull that out, 116. Uh, this is a portion of a psalm that Jesus and his disciples would have actually sung on the night that he was betrayed and arrested. And this is uh, Psalm 116. Uh, we'll read verse 13 together, and, and this is King David, and, and he's, he's prophetically speaking these words here. Listen to what he says in Psalm 116, verse 13. He says, I will lift up the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. I will lift up the cup of salvation, and I will call on the name of the Lord. And here what, what David's doing is he, he has an expectation of, of one day a cup will be lifted up, a cup of salvation will be lifted up. And, and this is actually, it happens thousands of years after this moment, but that Christ, the Messiah, would come and bring salvation to all. And, 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 and this statement, why I'm bringing this up in the first place, is because David here, he's, he's speaking from a heart of gratitude. And we just, we just sang about that a second ago. He's, sing, he's speaking about this cup from a heart, a place of, of gratitude. And, and, and it's this that drove David um, to receive the cup first. David had to receive this cup from God, which is a reminder for you and I that before we can go and do anything for God, we first have to be filled up by God. Do you hear me? Before, before we can do anything for God, we must first be filled up by him. And, and I love this because David, he's, in, he's in, this, in this situation. He's been in some sketchy scenarios. He's been in some, um, some dangerous situations. And what David doesn't do here is David, he, he doesn't go, man, why, why do I have so many problems that's not what David says. David here instead, he, he has all of these problems on the outside, but he goes, he, he's thinking about this. He's wondering, why has God been so good to me? And so it's this, it's this posture of gratitude that he has in this. And, and so I think that's a really, good, a really good place for us to start at this morning, just in that posture. And so if you would, let's pray together, and then we'll start this journey of, of Palm Sunday. Jesus, we love you. God the Father, we ask that you would shape us, that you would form us into the image of your Son. 
And Lord, whatever that means, you know, whether it's, whether it's to fill us up some more or to, to pour us out some or to cut away some chaff, we just, we want to look more like Jesus. So make us into your image, God. And God, I'm just, I'm, I'm burdened this morning. Lord, I, I don't, I hope we don't want to be, and I certainly don't want to be a community, God, that's just looking like a, a drug addict who's trying to come and get an, an emotional heroin one week in a month in the spiritual high. No, 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 God, we, we want to do life with you, Jesus. We want to do life with, with Emmanuel, God with us. And so this is a moment by moment. This is a day by day thing. And so, Lord, we just come this morning just like David and to lift up the cup and to receive from your word. And so, Lord, we, we ask that you would teach us Holy Spirit this morning as we, we set in this posture to receive. Teach us about the cup this morning in your blood, Jesus. In your good name we pray. Amen. Amen. Mm. By the way, I didn't ask you, but I always ask you, uh, do you love Jesus and are you ready to study his word this morning? Um, Pastor John, you know, I'm never sure uh, how I'll respond if, if people are like, I don't know. I don't know to that, you know. Um, they didn't, you're right. You're right. Uh, this morning, our, our main point that we're going to kind of lay out like palm branches uh, is this, and it'll be on the screen. Jesus came to drink the cup of God's wrath so that you and I can drink the cup of God's grace. Jesus drank the cup of God's wrath so that we uh, collectively, individually could drink the cup of God's grace. And so before we actually get to those cups, I want to take you on a real, a real quick road trip through this palm uh, journey. And so if you want to turn here with me, you can. Uh, this story is in all four of the Gospels, Matthew 21, Mark 11, Luke 19, and John 12. And we'll kind of hang out in Matthew 21 or Matthew a lot today, but Matthew 21. And I'm going to read, start in verse 9. So let me flip there. There we go. Matthew 21, 9. Um, and this is what it says. And the crowds that went before him and followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Tell your neighbor, Hosanna. 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 This is, uh, this is a Hebrew word that just means save me. It means save us. And the picture here that's painted in front of us from Matthew's uh, retelling is that there's a large crowd that's been gathered around as, as people are entering into Jerusalem. So you're talking about thousands of people who have showed up to celebrate the feast of the Passover. And so this is Palm Sunday. This is one week prior to the death and to the resurrection of Jesus and a common misconception set around Palm Sunday is that everyone's there, that the crowd's there just for Jesus, which isn't, isn't accurate. It's not true because everyone's there. They're coming in from all over the place to celebrate the feast of the Passover. That's why they're there. Jesus, he was Jewish. That's why he showed up here. And so what's unique about this moment is that even though everyone's there for the Passover, you better believe that the people that are attending there, they are wondering if this Jesus guy is going to show up. They're wondering if, if Jesus is going to show up to this party. Because remember, Jesus has already been in Jerusalem. He's already resurrected Lazarus. Everybody's heard about that. It's highly likely that post-dead Lazarus is in the crowd here in Jerusalem. And when Jesus comes in from verse 9, you can look at verse 9, the crowd's reaction to, to Jesus is that everybody starts cheering for him. 
It's like, it's like opening day at the, at the ballpark. They're like, Jesus, you're so awesome. Jesus, come sign my baby. Like they're like, this guy is great because they've heard about all of these miracles and all of these wonders that, that Jesus has, has done. But what's so incredible, even at the entrance of Jesus into Jerusalem, is that there's sort of a paradox preview of how Jesus enters into the city. And so King Jesus, he comes, he comes riding into Jerusalem. He comes um, trotting into Jerusalem. Does anybody remember the mode of transportation that, that Jesus used as he entered in? A donkey, right. So he, he comes in, that's in verse 7, if you want to look back. Um, he comes in on a, a donkey. And so a donkey's not really an, much of an impressive way to come in to town, right? Most of the earthly kings that were coming, they were coming on horses. And coming in on a horse or a white horse would signify triumph and victory and authority and power. But Jesus, he, he comes into town riding on a donkey. And that's, uh, that's kind of like showing up to the party in a pinto, right? And it's this, it's this really paradoxical thing that the, the king above every king would, would, would come in this way. And I don't know about you, but my mind, I can't help but think about the dynamic uh, of the crowd of people that are gathered watching Jesus ride in on this donkey. Because as Jesus rides in on this donkey, they're, they're taking off their jackets, they're laying their cloaks down, they're, they're putting the, the palm branches in front of Jesus, they're rolling out the red carpet. Right, because they, they, they've heard, they've heard about who Jesus is, all of the miracles that, that he's done, all of the, the teaching that he's done, the way that he's rebuked the Pharisees, like they've, they've heard about these things. And everyone's talking about what they, what he's been doing, so they know who Jesus is, but maybe not everyone's seen him yet, and so they're, they're trying to get a spot to see exactly who this guy is. Because word has spread. That, that this guy might be the long-awaited Messiah, Savior. And so there's this anxiety that's accompanied with uh, some curiosity and some unknowns. And everyone has this different agenda for Jesus as he comes riding in, right? They, they say that in the, in the text, they go, Hosanna, save me. They're saying, Say, take care of me like you took care of Lazarus. Or they're saying, if you're Jewish, Hosanna, save us, come into Rome, give us a new exodus. They've heard, they've heard about how Jesus took, took a few uh, fish sticks, a kid's Lunchable, and fed 5,000 people. And so they are intending to make Jesus king by force because they're going, hey, if he can do that with a lunchbox, imagine what he could do with a few swords in his hand. So they have this agenda for for Jesus. We'll praise you if you do what we want you to do. And I have to just pause here for just a second, church, because I just wonder for, for, for us, do you ever find yourself in the same hosannas as that, that crowd was? Where you go, Jesus, I, I'll praise you if you do this first, though. Or Jesus, I'll, you know, I'm going to sing along with this song as long as the right person's leading it today. Or Jesus, I'll come, I'll go to church today as long as the guy, right guy's up there preaching. Jesus, I'll, I'll do this if you do whatever it is first. And it's like, I'll, uh, I'll, I'll be part of a church, sure, Jesus, as long as I can do the minimal entrance requirements that it takes to be part of it. And what we need to know this morning is that's not why Jesus came for himself or for you to get the minimal, but Jesus came to accomplish something. And there's, a, there's all of this false expectation floating around about Jesus. 
In fact, in verses 10 and 11, if you want to look there, Matthew 21, they go on to tell us. When he entered Jerusalem, the whole city that was stirred up, saying, who is this? And the crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. See, the, the big problem here that at least the religious leaders have with Jesus, it's not the laying of the palm branches. That's not the issue. It's what the people are saying about Jesus that's the problem. Because they're looking, they're pointing at Jesus, and they're saying, this is Jesus of Nazareth, the, the prophet, the, the great Messiah, who's come to save us. And, and the Pharisees catch wind of this, and they go to Jesus, and they say, hey, Jesus, you gotta, have you heard what, they've said, what they're saying about you? These people think that you've come to, you know, you're the Messiah, that you've come to save everyone. And so the Pharisees are like, you need to, you need to tell them to shut up. And Jesus, in response to them, he says, well, I can do that, but if I do, the rocks are going to start shouting it out. And so Jesus, he, he doesn't say that, even with the impure intentions of the crowd. Jesus says to the Pharisees, hey, the, the, the creation will cry out in glory to me. And so the Pharisees are confused about Jesus. The crowd's confused. The Pharisees are confused. And in fact, even his followers don't quite understand what's going on here. To back you up just a little bit in the story, in Matthew 20, 20 through 21, it says that, Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him, Jesus, with her sons, and kneeling before him, she asked him for something, talking to Jesus, and he said to her, What do you want? And she said to him, Please say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your kingdom. And so this is within the week leading up uh, to Holy Week. And, and um, James and John, the two thunder buddies, right, that's, their, that's what they are, they come and, and they have their mom with them in front of Jesus, and they together go to Jesus, and, and, they, and, and the mom asks, Jesus, could you, just, could you let my boys sit beside with you when you conquer Jerusalem, when you go to glory? And she goes, can you put one on your right and one on your left, whenever you, whenever you come into your kingdom? That's what, that's what the mother is asking. Like you moms, a lot of you moms probably get this, right? Like, I get, I get where their mom is coming from, because these are my babies, right? And so they asked Jesus of this, and what I love in this moment is Jesus' response to her request, because Jesus doesn't rebuke her, it just, but in classic Jesus fashion, he responds to her question with another question, and, and he says this in verse 22, he goes, you really don't know what you're asking. And he says, are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? So we've got James, we've got John, we've got their mom, we've got the crowds, we've got the, the Pharisees, the disciples. They're all failing to understand that this, this reign of the Messiah, that it wasn't geographic, that it wasn't political, but that it was going to be spiritual and it was going to be everlasting. Because Jesus, he didn't come to oppressively win some earthly war. That's not why Christ came, because his war was never with people. His war was with sin. His war was with Satan and demons. And so on that, let me, let me, let me just ask you this morning, church, are you in the middle of fighting a war against people? Are you fighting against flesh and blood? Because let me remind you that the real battle is not that battle, but that our battle is against the powers and principalities of the spiritual darkness in this world. That's who our fight is against. And so I just want to ask, how are you doing in that fight? How are you doing in that wrestling match? So the people, they're, they're trying to come to Jesus, and they're trying to put this cup in Jesus' hand, this, this kingly, um, corporate, militaristically Roman-opposed cup in front of Jesus. 
And Jesus takes that cup and he sets that aside. And he says, no, no, no. I came to drink from a much different cup. It's a different fight that he has. And, and they came to Jesus asking for this earthly salvation. That's what they're after. But Jesus says, and he knows that it's going to take a heavenly sacrifice for him to make any difference. Jesus would have to drink the cup of God's wrath in order that we could experience God's grace. And so this is our, this is our paradox preview. It's still Thursday. Say Thursday. I just did that so I could get a drink of water. Thursday, and I want to show you a special supper that you're probably familiar with. Many of you are probably familiar with this supper. Um, this is where Jesus begins to redefine this whole cup thing, and this is in Matthew 26, 26 through 29. I'll just read it to you. Now, as they were eating, Jesus took the bread, and after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to the disciples, and he said, take, eat, this is my body, and he took a cup, and when he given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, drink of it, all of you. For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I won't drink again from this fruit of the vine, this cup, until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. So now in the, in the, in the storyline, Jesus is sharing uh, the most marvelous Passover meal of all time with his disciples. But in the, in the moment, the disciples only see this meal as in a retrospective form. They only see this meal and looking back, which it, which it is doing that. It takes us back to the Exodus account. It takes us back to the Old Testament, uh, where the Passover, when Israel, the Israelites, God's people, um, escaped 400 years of oppression of uh, Egyptian slavery. It's, it is pointing back to that moment. And so at that moment, was uh, God telling Moses, Moses, go to Pharaoh, tell Pharaoh, what did, what did he say? Let my people, there we go, let my people go. Pharaoh says, no. He says again, go back again, let my people go. No, I won't. Let my people go. No, I won't. And by the 10th round of this, after each time Pharaoh says no, and his heart is hardened, God sends in a plague. But after the 10th round of Pharaoh saying no, God says, I'm going to respond with a different sort of plague this time. And so he instructs each household in Israel to go and get a spotless lamb, a lamb without any blemish, to sacrifice that lamb, to take the blood of the lamb and to paint it over the doorposts of their home, and then to eat the lamb later with uh, unleavened bread and some bitter herbs. And to which Exodus 12, 13, I'll read this to you. It says, and the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. And so what happened in the story is that at midnight, every house uh, with the blood of the lamb, without the blood of the lamb, rather, lost the firstborn in their family and the firstborn from their herds to death. But for those with the blood of the spotless lamb, death passed over them. That's where we get Passover from. And so that scene, that whole scene from Exodus is what the, what the disciples are thinking about in this moment as they're celebrating this Passover meal. Naturally, it makes sense. It's pointing backwards as a memorial meal. And Jewish people have been doing this from the moment that they were liberated from Egypt. But in this particular meal that Jesus is sharing with his disciples in Matthew 26, as they're eating this meal together, they would have been reclined low at the table not like um, Da Vinci's famous painting where they're up. They would have been reclined low toward the ground with one another in community together sharing this meal. They were following uh, the traditional Judaic Seder supper. 
And this would have lasted a, a several hours. It would have had a lot of food and a lot of wine there. A lot of food and a lot of wine. Some of you hear that, you're like, sign me up, Pastor. Sign me up for that meal, right? But what exactly is the Seder Supper? What is this? What is this? Well, traditionally, um, the Passover meal, the Seder Supper, is it was a, a, a scripted form of liturgy worship. And so what, it, what they would do at the Seder Supper is that it would be like a, a choreographed setting of 15 different options of, 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 of tastes and sounds and smells, and all of them were directed to point back to God's faithfulness at the moment of the exodus. Now, in our contemporary view of this, you and I, we, we view the Lord's Supper um, traditionally, typically with, you know, one cup and one loaf of bread or in our post-COVID world, we have the, you know, the personally prepackaged cups that we use and everybody gets their own. Um, and Pastor Cody, those cups, man, I've got to believe that when it comes to those cups, it must have been some like ascetic Essene who was on a mission to make communion as unpleasant as possible. Because you eat the, see, you've, you've eaten those, you've choked on those crackers. You know what I'm talking about, right? They're gross, sorry. But here we have the good ones. So don't worry, we're going to take communion later. So please come up and, and do that. But we have a different sort of view of, of, of communion. It doesn't have as many. There's usually one cup. But historically speaking, at the Seder Supper, there would have been four cups. Say four. There would have been four cups at the Seder Supper, and each one of them would have had their own blessing, and each one of the cups would have told their own in particular story. And the four cups, what they represented were the four I will statements from God pointing back to Exodus chapter 6. And listen to this. Listen to these statements. Four cups, four statements. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. Number one. I, number two, I will bring, I will deliver you from slavery to them. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm, with great acts of judgment. And number four and five, I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. The Seder Supper with the four cups, what it does is it shows us that each cup is this integral part of the Passover celebration. And so really quickly, I want to share these with you. Cup number one, this is the cup of sanctification called the Kaddish cup. And, and this particular cup represents the very first I will statement of God from Exodus 6, where God said, I will bring you out from under slavery. That's the first cup. The second cup is the cup of deliverance or judgment. This is the Haggadah cup. And the Haggadah cup, what it does is it points back to the second I will statement of Exodus 6, where God said, I will deliver you, I will free you uh, from bondage. Now the third cup, the cup of redemption or the Barakah cup, this cup represented where God said, I will redeem you with my outstretched arm, I will bless you. But here on this cup, Jesus isn't just looking back anymore. No, no. He's pointing forward to what's to come soon on the cross now. And, and this is, he says, all of this is about me. Look at verse 27 of Matthew. And he took a cup. When he had given thanks to it, he said to them, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sin. Whoa! That's what you should have said right then. Because what Jesus does in this moment is he takes 400 years of Passover meals and he said, all of that has been pointing to me. And he completely upends it. 
He changes. He changes and said, all of that was pointing forward to me. This is, this is the cup that we observe whenever we take communion, church. This is the cup of the new covenant of Christ that Jesus was setting up. And so after this third cup, the disciples and Jesus, they sing a hymn of praise together from the Halal Psalms. Back to our very first verse that we started at in chapter 116 of Psalms. It said, I will lift up the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. And then they go out. But I want you to notice here that Jesus doesn't partake in the fourth cup yet. Verse 29. He says, I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of this cup of the vine until the day when I drink, the, with my, with, drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. This is the fourth cup, the, the halal cup, the cup of praise, the cu- cup of consummation, the cup of restoration. This is from the fourth and fifth promises of Exodus 6 where, where God says, I will take you as my people. I will be your God. I will protect you and I will restore you. Jesus doesn't drink from this cup. And he tells his followers, I'm not going to drink from this cup again until I'm drinking it with you in my Father's kingdom. And so just to recap here, there's four cups. There's four expressions of deliverance, four expectations promised by God here. And, and it's this, I will bring you out. I will deliver you. I will redeem you. I will take you. See, the Seder Supper, it wasn't only looking back to uh, Exodus, but it was pointing forward to what Christ would accomplish shortly on the cross, bringing a new Exodus for, for all people. And for the very first time, the disciples here are drinking in the, the promises of, of God's sanctification from sin, of his rescue from bondage, of Christ's redemption, and ultimately his restoration. And Jesus is making it clear here. He's saying, I, I am the spotless lamb that's going to be led to the slaughter. He's saying, I am the bread of life and my body's going to be broken like this matzah is. And he's saying that, that, that my blood is going to be poured out like these four cups are. And from that, I will bring out, I will deliver, I will redeem, and I will take. And in that moment, church, all of a sudden, the old Passover, it was, it was subsumed into a new one. As Jesus would drink the cup of God's wrath so that we can drink the cup of God's grace. And so, now the disciples, you know, they're even more confused What's, what's Jesus talking about with, with all of this? They, they don't understand this proclamation Jesus has just made about the gospel. But, but I want to repeat this again and make sure that you notice. Jesus, he takes the first three cups, but he doesn't finish the meal yet. He takes some of the cups, but he doesn't finish the meal yet. Because in order for Jesus to bring out, in order for him to deliver, in order for him to redeem, Jesus must finish the meal that he started in the upper room, with his death on the cross. He needs, he needs a different cup to replace this fourth cup. It's, it's a cup that makes the third cup, the cup of redemption, available to us. And it's coming from an altogether different cup. And Jesus is the only one who can drink from this cup. And this is the cup of God's wrath. The cup of God's wrath. And so this brings us to Gethsemane. In Matthew 26, 36 through 68, which we won't read all that. But that's where it's at if you want to read it for yourself. Jesus, he starts to mention this cup as, he, as he's in uh, the garden at Gethsemane. 
This is a Thursday night, early Friday morning, and, and so darkness has descended over, over all across Jerusalem. Everybody's already finished their Passover meals. They've, they've eaten the bread. They've drunk the wine. They've put their sandals and their belts and their staffs back up, which is part of the, the Seder. And, and, and at Caiaphas' house, just barely a half a mile away from Jesus at the garden, there's a conference that's going on between uh, the Sanhedrin and some officers from the temple guard and his treacherous disciple Judas. And Jesus is outside on the city hill on, on, in the Garden of Gethsemane, sitting with the other 11. And the other 11, they can't stay away, er, awake, but Jesus, he can't sleep because he knows what's ahead of him. And three different times in this section, we see Jesus pray about this cup that he's got to face. And in Matthew 26, 38 and 39, it tells us, then he said to them, my soul is very oh, sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little further, he prayed and said, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And so Jesus here, he prays for the father's assistance in order to drink this cup. And so this cup that Jesus is staring at right now, the father's cup that he is about to drink, it is by all accounts terrifying. Everything in the humanity of Jesus wanted to flee the impending physical torture of crucifixion that was coming. And, 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 and his Holy Spirit groaned inside of him with this overwhelming dread of the far greater spiritual torture of being forsaken by his father. And in fact, Jesus, he's under so much duress, the, the, the accounts tell us that he starts sweating drops of blood. And he's praying, God, if, if possible, let this cup pass, but not my will, your will be done. Jesus is looking down into the, the righteous rage of God against sin. He's staring at it directly, and he knows that he's the only one that can empty out and satisfy this cup. But as you look at this moment, you know, Earthly speaking, Jesus, he still has some options on the table from an earthly perspective, at least. Because Jesus, he could, he, could just, he could just fight like the zealots did. He's a young guy. He's got a lot of charisma. He could just fight. And the crowds are, are going to follow him to death, sure. Or he could withdraw like the Essenes did. He could go out to the desert, start his own little community, do church at home by himself. And many are going to follow him there. Jesus, he could, he could collaborate with the chief priests. And just imagine the reform that Jesus could bring about if the temple was the platform of his teaching. Jesus, he could, he could always try to cut a deal with Pilate. Just think about the influence that Jesus could have brought if he was, if he was affecting everything from the inside of Rome. What he might do, or Jesus could just call on God the Father. He could call on a legion of angels to come to his side and aid him. Because maybe, maybe it's just one more miracle, just one more miracle, and then everybody would join in with him. But Jesus does none of those things. This one lone, deserted, vulnerable man goes, I know what I have to do. And Jesus says, I will not fight. I will not run. I'm not going to try to cut a deal 
but I must die. Because not my will, but your wills be done. And Jesus would drink the cup of God's wrath so that we could drink the cup of God's grace. And so church, this table has been set. Either, either death is going to swallow Jesus up or, or Jesus would swallow up death. But the cup at Calvary, the same cup, the cup of God's wrath, the cup of Calvary wasn't just going to walk away. This is still the same cup. This is the cup of wrath. This is fulfilling the first three cups of the Seder, the, the third cup specifically, the cup of redemption. And so this is Matthew 27 and John 19 now. Jesus, he's been, you've heard the story, he's been captured, he's been flogged, he's been beaten, he's been spit on, he's been mocked. He's been put on trial, he's been falsely accused, and he has been convicted to death. And this is such a massive shift, right, from where we started. Where the crowds are looking at Jesus and they're saying, Hosanna, save us. And now the crowds are looking in and they're going, kill him. So church on this, let us not forget that if you and I, if we could listen in on those crowds, we would hear the same shouts, our same shouts right along with theirs calling out among the scoffers. Because likely at some point in all of our lives, we've been on both sides. Maybe, maybe we would have praised Jesus at some point, but, but we've all mocked him also in our sin. But the good news for us is that Jesus, he didn't come to, to save the righteous. Jesus came to save sinners like you and, and, and like me. And as Jesus takes the cup of the cross, he says this in John 19, 28. He says, I am thirsty. Don't miss this powerful statement. I am thirsty. And what he's saying is, is he's saying, give me the final cup so that I can finish this meal. So as he drinks the cup of God's wrath so that we can drink the cup of God's grace. And, and you know, it would be a real disservice for me to just leave you there and not tell you about what, what's in, inside of this cup of wrath from God to help us clearly understand. And so just really quickly, Psalm 75, it sets up a, a real clear expectation for this cup. It says this, for in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine, well mixed, not diluted, and he pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. The wrath of God was in this cup that was going to crush Jesus. But what is, what is Jesus emptying the cup? What, is that actually, what does that actually do? Well, well, it brings to us this really important, um, Jesus, theological term for those of us who are in him is it brings about a double imputation in this justification. It's a double imputation that happens. And this is 2 Corinthians 5.21, you know this verse. Paul tells us plainly, for our sake, God made him Jesus, who knew no sin to become sin so that you and I could become the righteousness of God. And first off, in, in number one in imputation here, is that our sin debt goes into Jesus' account. Impute, it's a Latin word. It's a Latin accounting term, actually. And so our sin debt gets deposited into Jesus' account. And here, here are the expenses paid from the verse. Listen, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin. Our sin, your sin, my sin has been imputed to Christ. 
We are the guilty party. He is the guiltless one. You and I, we break God's law. He perfectly kept God's law. Yet on the cross, God the Father poured out his cup of wrath on Christ because our sin was imputed and placed on Jesus. Our greatest debt was, was placed into Christ's account. And Jesus absorbed the horrific penalty that was set up for you and for me. And this atonement uh, paradox here is that it was, it was a blessing for us, but it was a curse for Jesus. It was a curse for him. Listen, to the, in, in the blessing part of it for us, it reminds us of number 624, which you're probably familiar with. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine uh, upon you and be gracious to you. Let him lift up his countenance to you and may he give you peace. And one author here wrote, in this moment, Christ becomes the opposite of this blessing in numbers, and it'll be on the screen. But he, he, he imagined it like this, may the Lord, God the Father saying to Christ, may the Lord curse you and abandon you. May the Lord keep you in darkness and give you only judgment. May the Lord turn his back on you and remove his peace from you. Not only in this moment was the Father's wrath satisfied in Jesus by his atoning work, but the Lamb of God remove your sin and my sin as far as the east is from the west by being the curse in our place. Paul writes about this in Galatians 3. He says these words, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it's written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. And so you got to wonder, right? Like what's God's intention with this cup then? And, and the good news for you and for me is that we don't have to wonder about it because God wrote his own commentary about it 700 years before in Isaiah. In this prophetic promise, listen to this. Isaiah says, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And by his wounds we are healed. Church, this first part, this imputation, in one word to sum it up, it's a substitution. It's a substitution. Jesus, without any sin, stood in the place of all sin, of all of the guilty, the hell-bound, the cursed sinners who are filled to the brim with sin. He died in our place. He became the curse for us. But that's not all. There's a second part of imputation that happens at the cross. And that not just that our sin gets deposited into Christ's account, but, but that Christ's righteousness gets deposited into ours. This is the second part of 2 Corinthians 5. So that, here's the why. In him, we might become the righteousness of God. <laughs> Jesus takes your sin, puts it in his account, but then he takes it a step further. And he clothes you with his righteousness. And so whenever you and I, when we stand before God the Father, if we are in him, as 2 Corinthians said, we are in Christ's righteousness. Do you, do you get this? Like Jesus took your filthy rags and he exchanged it and put on you his righteous robe. And we are saved by this amazing grace as the curse is exhausted. The cup is emptied at the cross. There's another pastor that, that pictured the, the, the cup being drained in a different way. He said, imagine that you, that you live in a village um, half a mile down from a, a dam. And imagine that that dam is filled up to the brim with water. 
that it's a thousand miles wide, that it's a thousand miles tall. And he says, imagine that that, cut, that, that, um, that that dam breaks. And all of a sudden, you look up and you realize that there's this tsunami of wrath coming at you. In that moment, it doesn't matter about the strength of your stroke. It doesn't matter how good you are because you are facing wrath. And he says, but, but, but then imagine all of a sudden the ground breaks open and that it, it drinks the full power of the, the water, the wrath coming down and, and that not even a, a, a drop touches your toes. That's what Christ did on the cross for you. He drank our sin. The full wrath of God was laid on him. It was his punishment that has brought us peace. And Jesus, he doesn't just pass this job off to an angel. He doesn't just hand it off to one of his prophets in history. But he comes himself to bear our grief. And he finishes the same way that he started, by emptying himself. What do I mean with that? One Philippians 2, we're told about how Jesus came. Who though he was in the form of God, this is Philippians 2, 6 through 7. Though he was in the form of God, God he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he what? Emptied himself taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And this is this language here is it, it, it's not Jesus giving up something of God to become man. That's not the picture. Jesus emptying himself here isn't by a, a subtraction, it's by it's by addition. And so he, he he takes on something that's lowly. And in the Palm Sunday story in John chapter 19, verse 30, you know this verse, Jesus says these words, it is finished. Jesus was finished. He was finished emptying himself, submitting to the will of God the Father by the power of God the Holy Spirit. And when Jesus says those words, it is finished. Sure, he's, he's referring to his mission. Sure, he's referring to his life, but he's also referring to that meal that he started at the Last Supper with his friends. And Jesus, on the cross, he seals this Passover promise, and he drinks down to the very last drops the wrath of God. And it's become, it's become this paradox, right, of the, of the cross that we see, that, that we can be saved. Jesus was able to take a symbol that was meant for shame, and he changed it into a symbol of salvation. He took the, the thing that was meant to bring the, the ultimate expression of fear and the ultimate threat, and he changed it into the ultimate hope. And in some sense, the cross, um, at the cross, Jesus came to express the exact opposite of the original purpose of the cross, that, 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 that an embraced sacrifice is still greater than the stain of sin. And you and I, we get to participate in this because Jesus drank the cup of God's wrath so that you and I can drink the cup of God's grace. You know, since we're coming off of, of the cross, would it be okay if I, if I hit you with some John 3.16 real quick? John 3.16, you know, it's that, um, it's that Awana, that... Uh, um, kids, it's the, one of the mo most well-known Bible verses of all time because it's packed full of the gospel. I just want to read, you know this, but I want to read it to you. It says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And this is, let's leave that up for a second. I think that sometimes whenever you and I, when we read this verse, it's on the screen, 
and we get to that that so part of it, we, we tend to read it in the sense of God loved the world so much, which is true, but that's not necessarily what this verse is illustrating to us because the word that is used there for so is actually thus. And see, everybody knows John 3.16, but not many people know about John 3.14 and 15. And to understand John 3.16, we need to understand John uh, 3.14 and 15. And it's because of those verses, thus, for God loved the world like this, thus he sent in his only son. And in John uh, chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, if you don't know, um, Jesus was talking about how back in the day that people, that they were, they were sick and they turned from God. And in the book of Numbers, God had told Moses to, to take a bronze serpent and to lift it up on a pole in the wilderness. And he told Moses that anybody who would look upon this bronze serpent that was lifted up would be healed and that they would be saved. And so in John 3, 16, he says, in the, in the same way that God has lifted up Jesus on the cross so that if you were to look to him, that you could be healed, that you could be saved. And so in this same way, God has sent his only son into the world. And it's Jesus who was lifted up for the sin of the world. It's Jesus who died for that sin. He died for your present sin, for your past sin, for your future sin. He died for the sin of the world. And that's such a big statement. And I think that it's hard to, to wrap our brains around it because it's so big. And so let me bring this a little closer to home for you. Jesus, he died for child abuse. Jesus, he died for greed. He died for gossip. He died for anger. He died for adultery. Jesus, he was lifted up like the serpent, like the bronze serpent. He was lifted up for the crusades. Jesus, he was lifted up for slavery in the south. Jesus, he was lifted up for the Holocaust. Jesus bore the curse of fanatical, demonic terrorism that you and I seen this past week. If you haven't heard about it, there was, a, there was a shooting at a school, at a church, at Covenant Presbyterian School and Church. Jesus was lifted up for that. Will you pull those pictures up for me for a second, Kyle? Jesus, he was lifted up for the sin of Catherine and Mike. He died for Evelyn and Cynthia. Jesus, he was lifted up for Holly and for William. And I'm sharing these faces with you just so that you know these aren't just names in a newspaper. But the, these are real people. It's real families. It's with real children. And whenever you and I, when we see the demonic sin in our world, what, what we try to do sometimes after the shock factor of it is we want to fix it. And I think that comes from a place of good intentions, but I want you to hear me on this. That idea of we can fix this, it goes back as far as the Tower of Babel. 
And so what we, what we tend to do, and, and we think we can fix this, is we cry out for legislation and we cry out for reform. I seen somebody post this week on social media, stop praying because your prayers aren't doing anything. They're not changing anything. And what this is, church, is this is a picture of a world that has gone terribly wrong, that it is broken, and creation cries out alongside of us for it to be set right again. And in our passivity or apathy or lack of involvement, that's as great as an indictment on us as any other. But this is what sin does. And so we go, okay, how do we deal with sin? We have to bring it back to the cross. We have to view it through the cross. And I think about that today as we, as we hear these stories of evil in our world. Because it's really easy for you and me, it's really easy for us to view the script as the good guys against the bad guys, as the, there, are, there are villains and there are victims and then there are innocent bystanders and spectators. And that's not the message of the Bible. Because the Bible tells me, listen, that that same evil isn't just around me, but that same evil is inside of me. And that there's nothing I can do to fix myself because turning a blind eye, anger, um, selfishness, whatever it is, all of that stuff lives in me. And so what Christ does is he bids you and me to come and be made new, to be spiritually reborn. Without the cross, at the center of this, our stories make no sense. The Jesus story is just another story of a charismatic spiritual guy who came in history. Every religion in the world teaches you that you have to work your way up the mountain to God. Except for one that screams out to us that Jesus came down the mountain, that he was nailed to a tree, and that he drank the cup for you. It's a message of the one true God who came and died a slave criminal death on a cross. And, and, and where God's grace becomes available to any who would believe. This is what's so amazing is that his grace isn't just greater than the worst sin you can imagine, than the worst sin in your life, but God's grace is, is, is greater than every one of your sins combined. Jesus died for your sin. He was lifted up for your sin. I want you to imagine with me for a moment that everyone on the entire planet from the very beginning of time, that each of us has been given a cup with our name on it. And from the very beginning, you and I have been making deposits in that cup. Every time we sin in word or in deed, on purpose or on accident, we've been making deposits into this cup. And, and, and the scriptures tell us that because of sin, we deserve death. And let me tell you, the only, there are only two things that can happen with this cup. Number one is that Jesus Christ emptied your cup on himself at the cross. He paid your debt and, and gave you his righteousness. That's option one. Or option two, the only other option is that you will drink the cup one day in judgment and in eternal hell because there is a price to be paid for your sin. And see, uh, hell isn't a scare tactic. It's not. It's no different than someone receiving a potassium-filled needle that committed homicide. It's no different. It's just the penalty that's due for the crime. 
And so it will, it will lead to an eternal death. But make no mistake, every one of us has a cup. And so this conversation isn't about which sins go into the cup. The conversation is that every one of us has a really big cup. Because no one accidentally ends up in hell. It's always a choice that you make. And so my question for you this morning is what are you waiting for?